we began a study of looking at what the Church of Christ is, that we have a, a better understanding of it, and it, I'm sure as you understood from us speaking about it last week, it has many angles to it. And um, I hope you have the handout there that was on the table on the way in, that's from our Confession of Faith, that describes what the Church is. And we saw last time, and I mentioned it this morning too, so hopefully we have that definition nailed down, that the Church is called out from the world to be an assembly for God, and to be holy and separate unto Him for His love and His service. And we just we saw three things last time, really. The first was that this call, this outward call uh, that God made in Christ uh, is throughout biblical history. Thanks, brother. That call that God makes went out throughout history. So although we looked at Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, that building really began at the beginning of time. And we saw lots of examples of how God has always been calling certain people and families, first of all, then a nation, to himself, to be one with him and to know him among all the false gods, to know him and to live in him and to be holy and righteous and to worship before him. And that that went out when Christ came to the Gentiles. And we are part of that. And it spread throughout the whole earth. God calling that people together. That is what we call the visible church. That the call goes out and everyone hears the gospel call and many people respond to it for lots of different kinds of reasons. People respond to that call. Promise of salvation promise to have all your sins forgiven, promise of everlasting life, the promise of resurrection, the promise of a loving community that you can be part of. There are lots of reasons people hear that call and consider it. And he calls people to himself into an assembly. That assembly is the kingdom of God. It is the church of God. In Old and New Testament, one church as the Confession says, one Catholic and universal church. Catholic is just the old word for universal. This is not the Roman Catholic idea, but the original Catholic with a small c idea. There is one church throughout the earth. And that church, we saw, is organized around doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. I said this this morning. Doctrine, it makes statements about worship, etc. These four pillars the church organizes around. And we saw in the Gospels, and we saw in Paul's letters, especially to Timothy, that the church makes doctrinal statements that are given to her by God, uh, and she worships according to the command of God. She is governed by the directives that are in Paul's letters, and uh, there is a standard of holiness of life and discipline. That creates a a visible organization that is governed according to these standards, that people hear a, the preaching of the gospel comes from these churches and they respond to it and they join that church. So when we say um, that God has called people since the beginning and gathered them, the second point was he gathers them around those pillars. This structure has real structure to it. It has lines. It is organized according to the commands of the Bible. And we saw lastly that it's a formal kingdom. The confession says in paragraph 2, in the third line, that the church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So once that structure is raised and it's calling people in, anyone who professes the true religion and covenants with the church, they, they believe the list of doctrines, they worship according to that worship, they acknowledge that government, and they acknowledge a holiness of life and an accountability to the church. When they profess that truth, Christ is the Son of God, there is a Holy Spirit, sin is real, 
there is a judgment day. God is triune. All these things, when they profess these things and profess their sinnership and their need of a Savior, the church accepts them formally. Whether they're regenerate or not, that isn't the point right now. The point is, if the profession is credible, they are received and they have the full rights of sons and daughters in that kingdom and their children. For the children of professing believers have that special relationship too. So the family and the children are engrafted into this visible church throughout the earth and they receive all the benefits, the sacraments, teaching, um, spiritual oversight and eldership, all these good things are given to those who profess the true religion and their children. So he calls an assembly, he organizes an assembly and governs it, and he draws people in to make professions into that assembly. And I just want to say that that is a great blessing, that there is a church, that there's always been one. It's never been destroyed. Even in the days of Noah, when there were only eight left on the earth, or in the days of Elijah, when there were only 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, or even in the days of Christ's disciples themselves, when he met them in the mountain in Galilee and 500 were assembled together, there has always been a church of God. And then the confession states from Scripture that there will always be one. He preserves the church. It is his visible, organized church, however corrupt it becomes, however many mistakes are in it, how many falls are in it, the church will worship and will call sinners until the day that Christ returns. Even if there's a great falling away, there will be a church somewhere on this earth standing for Christ. It cannot be destroyed, for the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But we turn here, as wonderful as that is, we turn here to a more glorious truth, if we can say such a thing. If there is something more glorious than that, I think there is. Um, the confession tells us that um, there is an invisible church. And that's in paragraph one. These are not different churches. It is a mystery. It is hard to understand. Christ has one kingdom and one church. But the confession acknowledges what the Bible has said and what those who know the Lord's word have always understood from the Bible. And that is that the Bible speaks plainly of these two aspects of the one thing that are difficult to reconcile. The first aspect we saw last week, that's paragraph two, the visible organized church. But the second aspect is paragraph one, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect which have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. That is the other aspect of the Church of Christ, that there is an invisible aspect to it, an invisible church. And what is that invisible church? That invisible church is all of the elect who will be saved by Christ and who will be redeemed and made holy and who will love Christ. All true believers that were set upon by the love of God from the beginning until the end of the world. The Bible says that that is one church it's called invisible simply because we can't discern it. It doesn't mean it's always invisible. I mean, true believers are not invisible. True worship is not invisible. And we, we are here in a tangible, visible church, in a visible denomination. But the invisible church penetrates that denomination. There may be aspects of our denomination that are only the, invisible, uh, the visible church. 
but within the visible church, the invisible church is there alive and active. But it's not only here on the earth, it's all the elect since the beginning of time, till now, until the end, and it is the invisible church as the elect on earth right now, and the ones who are glorified in heaven. So God sees them all as one. That is a clear uh, biblical teaching that when God looks at his people, he says, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. He doesn't divide them up. They are one. Israel was one nation. It had different tribes, different gifts, different talents, but one nation. And we are part of the invisible church which transcends the nation of Israel. That one people, that one group who are the children of God and who are loved by God, they are one and God sees them as one. That is the invisible church. Let's hear a couple of things about this invisible church. We see one, the eternal history of that church. And we're going into glorious things here. But the eternal history of that church, that God viewed it beforehand in eternity and knew that church <clears throat> even before he created the cosmos. And before he made Adam and Eve, and before he spanned the dial and got human history going, when there was only God in his eternity, in his infinity and in his glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, in an eternal, joyous, holy fellowship, God, especially viewed in God the Father, viewed this church and knew them all individually and loved them fully and comprehensively as his people. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 1, and we read that, <clears throat> Ephesians 1 verse 4 He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love and he predestined us to adoption as sons. In God's view, in God's line of sight even before there was a universe, before he made all the stars and the moons and the galaxies and everything that exists before he created heaven, before he created angels, when there was only God eternal, in the mind of God there was a church and he chose us before the foundation of the world. And he elected this invisible church in love. Now, that's what we have to say about God. God doesn't experience things like we do. <clears throat> we are born, we learn things, we begin to love someone. We meet them, or a child is born, or friendships are formed, and you can point to the day that that began. God, God does not experience that. God doesn't go from one experience to another. He's not a creature. We're in time. He's not. He exists with full knowledge, full wisdom, and full glory. So everything that will ever happen is already ever-present in his experience and in his mind from all eternity. It doesn't begin and move forward. It's more like a circle. It's just in the circle. It doesn't follow a line a plus B equals C. It doesn't work like that with God. God sees A, B, C all at once. The fact that there is an invisible church and there is an elect, that means that God's love for you has never begun and it's never grown. It's, it's, ne it's never increased or decreased. It is just in Him. That's why we worship Him. That's when we stop explaining and we worship that he never began to love you. That is just the truth of Scripture. You were elect eternally. You've always been elect if you're in the invisible church. 
You have always been elect. Paul deals with these things in, in Romans 8, that famous chapter. Romans 8.29 To those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.29 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. But you know those words. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he predestined. But it's that word, foreknew. <coughs> God the Father knew you. If you know and love him, if you're in Christ. God the Father foreknew you then. Now, to foreknow doesn't mean he just had some cold knowledge of you. In the Bible, to know someone, the Lord knows those whom are his. Or when it says Adam knew his wife Eve. Or when John says, by this we know that we know him. We don't just know about him. Adam didn't just know about Eve. And the Lord doesn't just know about those who are his. He knows them. If I say, um, I know this person. If you ask me about a person, what is this person like? Do you trust this person? And I say, look, I know this person. I'm not saying I know a few things about them. I'm saying I know them. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to adoption. The Lord... God saw you and loved you in election from all eternity and he knew you. He said that to Jeremiah. In that awful situation Jeremiah was in, before you were in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart as a prophet to the nations. What a wonderful doctrine in the Bible. God is not a cold, creating um, blind watchmaker. God is, God is not a scientist. God, God is, God is not some great force or power who creates. God is personal. And if you can conceive of it tonight, the fact that in Christ, He knew you. He knew all the days of your life. He knew every single atom in your body. He knew every thought you would ever have, every pain you would ever experience, and every word you would speak. He knows you like I can't know you. And he knew that before the world was. How liberating and comforting that thought is in a lonely world of misunderstanding and falling out and degradation in society when families are torn apart and the uh, there is conflict in, in churches in these things. How comforting in a world of evil when the devil is attacking you to be able to stand on that firm ground and say, the Lord, though, though everyone else forsake me, the Lord knew me. And he didn't get to know me by accident. He didn't come across me. And he didn't then judge me and say, I, Oh, I, I like you, I want to get to know you. He loved you first, even when he saw all your sin. He loved you perfectly, more than you could ever love your own child. That's how old this church is. It goes as far back into the eternity of God itself. He loves by electing and by knowing you. This leads us into the truth of the fact that his people to him are a bride. That's what the invisible church is. The bride of Christ. He doesn't know you as a president. He doesn't know you as an employer. He doesn't just know about you. He knows you, the Bible says, as a husband loves his wife. Israel was God's bride, but she was nothing compared to the church. The true invisible church is the true 
bride of God. He says in, in Isaiah's prophecy and chapter 61, chapter 62, you shall be a crown of glory, Isaiah 62, 3, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You will never be called forsaken. Your land will never be called desolate. You shall be called Hephzibah. And your land shall be called Beulah. Hephzibah means, I delight in her. Beulah means, married. That is how God viewed his church, even in the Old Testament dispensation. You shall be called, I delight in her. You shall be called, married. And as a young man marries a virgin, so your son, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. God has a bride, and it's the invisible church. He saw that bride in eternity. That bride is a collection of fallen, evil sinners that God has mercy on. <coughs> and he redeems and reshapes and purifies and turns her into the most beautiful person in existence. There is no one as beautiful as the bride of Christ, for she bears his beauty. And God saw her fully in eternity. How comforting. We can take a step back then. It is good to be committed and industrious and passionate and concerned about evangelism and the state of the church. That's one side of the coin that's necessary. But sometimes you have to flip the coin and take a step back and say, God has seen the whole church for, for all history, and it's already complete in his mind. He knows where they all are, and he will bring them. They're all elect from the foundation of the world, and not one will be lost. He knows where they all are. Every city and village and field in America, he knows those who are his. Everyone that will be born for the decades or centuries until Christ returns, God already knows exactly where they all are and where they will be born, exactly in what family and what house, and exactly their entire history of each life is already written by God in his book. They're already in the Lamb's book of life. And God looks at Adam and Eve and Abraham and Jacob and over to us, you and I, and the ones who will be born, and they are all one in his mind and he loves them perfectly. I, I can take a Sabbath when I know that. I, I can calm down when I know that and lay in the Lord's bosom and rest and be at peace and, and say, this is your work, not mine. And you love all of these people and their salvation is not ultimately dependent upon me, but on you. That's the eternal history of uh, the Church of Christ. The whole number of the elect, elect, the Confession says, that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. There you have the bride, the elect, the body of believers. The group of people that God looks at and says, My people. What happens then? We see secondly that they're given to the Son. They're given to the Son. In Ephesians 1, and we're really kind of hovering around that passage, um, you'll see how they're all connected to Christ, all of these statements. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 6, he made us accepted in the Beloved. God the Father is an electing person. He is a fatherly person, a loving person. And this bride, although the Old Testament says, I marry them, really, they're going to be married to his son. That's really what the situation is. For as this paragraph tells us, this church is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. They are the spouse of Christ and the bride of Christ. And the Father has them in love, but he gives them to the Son. Now that's a biblical doctrine, that isn't me kind of winging it. It's in, it's in the Bible, we read in John 17, Father, I want them. Father, bring them where I am. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Christ says in John 17, they were yours and you, you gave them to me that I would be in them and they in me. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he leaves us in no doubt. Just as the husband is head over the wife, so Christ is the head of his church. And the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. She is given to his son. And can I mention too, I mean, I have to preach the Bible to you and give you the, the glory, glorious truths that God wants us to have. Even that was done before the foundation of the world. We were given to the Son before the world was made. We weren't just elect by the Father, but when the Father, Son, and Spirit entered into covenant, the covenant of grace to save, the Father said, I will elect them, and we must get these people back. Will you die for them and deal with their sin? And Christ agreed to that covenant. God and his Son are in covenant. And Christ's part of that covenant that he has to fulfill is to be incarnate and to contract himself to the size of a human soul and to live in fallenness and in an evil world, in weakness in himself and to rely solely upon his Father to live righteously and then to place himself on the altar and receive the eternal penalty for sin for that bride. And the Father and Son and Spirit knew that and it's presented in covenant and Christ agrees to it. He says, I will go. So even as the Father has called me, I will go. And whatever works the Father has given me to do, I do them. For the Father loves me, for I always do the things that please him. And he prayed to his father on the night in which he was betrayed, and he said, They were yours, now give them to me. You gave them to me, sorry. So, we know that in God, even before he created the world, that covenant already existed. It was their purpose to show mercy to sinners. And this people is almost like a wedding gift. It's a, an espousal gift that the Father gives to his Son. Do this and you will receive this. Christ does it for these jewels. These jewels who are elect in the Father, but are given to him because he loves them. So we we have seen the, the eternal history of this bride, this church of Christ, his mystical body, and we've seen that they're given to the Son, and that is sure. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were given and it's done. We can't be taken out of that. The devil cannot pull you or I 
out of real salvation at all. It cannot be done. The devil is a creature. He cannot uproot that eternal purpose that the Creator has. God is untouchable. And the devil cannot sever me from my beloved, my husband. And he cannot sever you. For what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? Nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing? Or principality or power? Can anything change this action that God took in giving us to his Son? No. It cannot be undone. We were given in his purpose. And then in our lives, thirdly, we're given actually now. In our, in our actual lives, there's a point at which that actually takes place. The, the second point I made there about um, being given to the Son, that's almost like a business contract. That's a schematic. That's like an architect who comes to show you the house you're going to build and it's all there in the plan. And it's exact and it will be done. But the house actually has to be built at some point. And the house will look exactly like the plan, but it has to be built. We were given to the Son by the Father, but in our lives, God came for us and he gave us to Christ. He put us into a union with Christ. That's the the call. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made alive together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places. He made us alive with Christ. That's the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Yes, we thank God what we saw last week, that call that goes out all of the time from the church that's preached to every man and woman. Come and be called in. This call I'm speaking about here, that God has given you to Christ and he will come in your life and take you, that is not the same call. This is the effectual call. This is the gracious call. This is not a call that we think about and say yes or no to. This is a call that comes in sovereignly and makes your soul live. And do you remember when that happened? Maybe not the exact moment, but there was a time that that was not going on. And you maybe knew many things, even about God or religion, but there was a time when it changed from knowing these things to knowing Him. And He called you. That giving in eternity that God secured for you that that certificate that marriage certificate it happened in your life and the Holy Spirit in Christ called you to himself and at that point when that gracious call comes and transforms and regenerates a fallen dark soul, there is a love and a life born in your soul that comes from Christ himself. You have the life of God in you. And what happens is you are engrafted into Christ like a branch is to a tree, you are really, actually, tangibly engrafted into Christ. It's not an idea in a book. It's not something just to know in the mind. (coughs) When you're born again, the Holy Spirit locates himself in you. He's in eternity and he touches you there. He, He comes in and he makes contact with you. And he never leaves. And you are joined there. And lo and behold you find that through that channel you are joined and engrafted to Christ himself. And I can't emphasize that enough. Any truly born again person is actually united to Christ. Your soul is united to his soul. He is there in heaven. 
and his soul is in his body, and he flows out from his body in light and glory, and he has the spirit without measure, the eternal spirit. He is the Messiah. That's what Messiah means. The anointed, spirit-saturated one of God. He has all of the Holy Spirit. An unending fountain of spiritual power from that person. And Christ's soul, from there the Holy Spirit pours and goes throughout the earth into the soul of every believer. That is union with Christ. You were given by the Father, you were loved by the Father, but in your life He took you, for the two shall become one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I speak a great mystery, I speak of Christ and His church. They are one flesh. We are united to Christ in one spirit. It's amazing. You maybe feel far from Christ, or if you live in the same day that I live in, there isn't a tangible, conscious nearness of Christ that most people have. He's an idea. He's in a confession. Uh, he's in a sermon. But he, he's not properly detected in all of our lives. We, we live in a dull day, in a spiritually dull day, and it's hard to see these things. But that's why we bring them up like I am tonight. That's the truth. We need to take that truth and rejoice in it tonight. Why should I ever feel alone for whatever I am? When the devil tells me you're nothing. When the devil tells me you can't do anything. When the devil tells me all you will do is fail. When the devil tells me this is an evil world. A very dissatisfying world. A very frustrating world. When the devil tells me that, I should be able to say biblically, but my soul is united to Christ, who is on the throne of all things. Not just united to Christ, but to each other. By the way, that's in the confession there. Under Christ, the head thereof. Under Christ, the head. And where does it say that it's his body? Yes, and it is the spouse, the body. There's the head and the body. Christ is the head, the elect or the body. What kind of body in which the head and, and the rest of the body aren't attached? The idea is ludicrous. We are not just united to Christ, but we are united to one another. That union with Christ is a union with one another. When God says here that he has an invisible church that is one, that is one body and one people under God, that means that my soul is not only united to Christ, but we are all united to each other. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit dwells in each born-again Christian. So when you're united to him, and he is united to every believer, you find that you're all connected as one. You're all drawing life from the same source. And when I am worshipping or praying or speaking to you, and the Holy Spirit is active in me, and he's active in you, we are basically one. It's not that there's this small portion of the Holy Spirit in me and a small portion of the Holy Spirit in you. He is one person. So if he is active in you and he is active in me, then we are the same. We are the same. And we will want and love the same things and speak of the same things and pray of the same things. And we will love one another. Why? Because the same one dwells in both of us. So when we're together, there should be no gap between us. We're the same bride. We are the spouse of Christ. 
there should be no alienation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says this is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Verse 23, Ephesians 1. The fullness of him who fills all in all. You're united to Christ, you're united to each other. Man, you're united to every member of the invisible church, including all of the ones who have already been glorified. There is one church. There is one invisible church. Yes, many of them are exalted, and they are the church triumphant, and we are the church militant in this battle here, but that's only for the sake of speaking about it. There are not two churches, there is one. Are you amazed at these things? Union with the Son of God, union with every believer on earth, with the same eternal person dwelling in you, but union with every believer in glory. Adam, Isaiah, Abraham, Esther, Ruth, Boaz, Daniel, every saved Jew who ever lived and every Gentile back then that went in, Naaman, Job, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Spurgeon, Calvin, I'm naming the big ones. There are a lot of beautiful believers who they, they don't have celebrity status. But you, do you know the point? They all passed from death, through death into the immediate presence of glory and they are filled with joy and wonder and awe and their souls are perfect. And they are part of the bride of Christ. They are pure. But when they look at Christ in heaven, and they're looking at him right now, they are, there is singing and praise in heaven right now, they are staring at him, they are hearing the truth from his mouth, they are hearing better sermons. And they look at him, and the reason they can see his glory is that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. He has given them a fullness of the Spirit. They are in glory, praising the Father, praising the Son, and loving one another, and they are never to be distressed again. They are in perfect solicity, felicity. And it's because they're filled with the Holy Spirit and His light, love, and glory. And we have the same Spirit in us. The Spirit who is currently working in your soul, enabling you to listen to God and giving you spiritual vitality that same spirit that's in you right now, he is in Jeremiah and Abraham in heaven. The same person. The same person that is speaking through Jeremiah's heart. The same person that is opening Adam's eyes. And the same person that is filling Esther's mouth with praise right now. He's in here with us. Be in this church. This is who we are. One historic bride from all eternity, given to the Son in eternity, given to the Son in union with Christ, united with each other, and united to the church in heaven. For there is, as our confession rightly says, only one Catholic and universal invisible church. There is only one. Hebrews 12 says that I wouldn't turn to you. Uh, turn to it, but it says that these are the, it's the church of the New Jerusalem, the mountain, the elect of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. We do not come to a mountain with tempest and blackness like Sinai. We come to the New Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord, to an innumerable company of angels, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We are one church, and every time we worship, we are worshipping with that exalted, triumphant church. And the angels are present and worshipping their creator with us. 
There is what you are united to Christ, united to each other, and united to them. Let me close with this. This bride is to be pure. I will make you beautiful. You shall be a crown in the hand of your God. We read that Paul said in Ephesians 5 that he loved her and he gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy before him. He has loved her from all eternity. He unites her and calls her in his son and she is united to her husband and she is one bride and she is to be pure that he might sanctify her. Remember we said that the church is called apart from the world. Well, we are to be holy. We are to have no spot or wrinkle or blemish or stain in our souls and minds and how different the reality is. Sin prevails against us. And often God says to us as his bride, your faithfulness is like the morning cloud. It appears for a moment and it vanishes away. how weak our faithfulness to this husband is, partly because we don't know these things with reality anymore. We live in a day of small things, a day that lacks power. The 20th century was the only century that did not have a widespread universal Christian revival, and we desperately need one, for everything has grown dim. The people who founded our denominations the original Reformed Presbyterians, who were at Westminster and wrote this confession, they had a vision of the church as this bride, and they covenanted to purify all her doctrine, worship, and government. That the church of the United Kingdom would be one, and would be pure, and would be the bride of Christ, undefiled in all of these ways. We need a vision like that, and to stop treating the church like she can have affairs, like she can go off with other lovers and give herself and her heart to other idols. No, we are to love Christ alone. And we need an outpouring of the Spirit that I have spoken about, for he is restraining himself. He is restraining his power. When he is poured out and he comes back and the church as a bride cries out like she did in the Song of Solomon, I sought my beloved in all the streets and I found him not. And I cried out and the watchmen found me and they beat me and they took away my veil and they mistreated me. When the bride finds her husband again, she is filled with power and with love that is irresistible and the church becomes a powerful vehicle of love and holiness and gospel in the world and the world takes note you don't mistreat someone's wife a judge or a senator or a president if you mistreat their wife they will have something to say about it. Look at how Christ's wife is being treated. And as a wife, should we not cry out to God in endless prayer meetings for his return to come in power, that he might purify us. And that purity will consummate one day. And I want us to leave with that beautiful thought. One day, that church will be pure, without one spot or sin. And you and I, if we love him, will be there. And we will look upon his face no longer by faith, or no longer in a sermon, but we will look upon our husband 
the one which the Song of Solomon calls my beloved. My beloved. And he says to us, you are my sister, my spouse, my undefiled one, my darling, and my dove. The gospel is about a husband and a bride. The invisible church is that bride. Let us be near to our husband and call upon our husband and have the hope that one day soon, and pray for that day, that all of us will be in eternity, in an eternal marriage, with fullness of joy, with perfect bodies, souls, and minds, to live forever as his bride. For the Bible says, Then I saw the new Jerusalem come out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. Let us pray. Let's stand to pray. Everlasting God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with these things. We pray that in looking upon them it would stir us up to a love for Christ and a love for your people and your bride. Help us to protect your bride and when we work and labor in the visible church, help us to remember the truth of the invisible church and the glorious things that Christ does for his people and what the end will be what the final state will be. O Lord, in light of the eternal kingdom that is coming and the wonderful eternal closeness we will know of the Lord then and the union we have with each other in that place and in thinking upon that bride as she will finally appear may we do all we can now to live to that calling and to bring it to pass now help us to live among one another in light of the great mercy and love that's been shown to us by him and help us to love one another as we make our way towards that glorious wedding when we will be presented to our husband. O oh God, go with us now. Bless our needy souls and guard us from the evil one. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.